0: We as Christians are a people of hope that follow a God of hope. Is that true? Do you believe that? Our hope is that one day God will bring perfect unity to his creation. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he captures this, this moment perfectly when he says that God and his creation will be fully united and become one. This is not universalism. This is those that are his. But this is what it says. When all things are subjected to him, the Father... And the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now this is not pantheism, this is not um, Eastern meditation philosophy, this is the truth, that God will be so united with his creation, the way it was intended, that we will be one with him and he will be all in all. We will be filled by God and therefore we will be fulfilled. Do you look forward to that day? We all are looking for fulfillment now in all sorts of different things, but the thing that we will be fulfilled by is when we are fully one with God. But church, I have even more good news for you this morning. You don't have to wait for that day in the future. Sure, that day will fully come when Christ is with his creation and we see him face to face. That will be the fullness of it. But... You don't have to wait for that to happen and start then. The Bible is clear that God wants to begin the process of filling your life with his presence now. That God is near us. He is with us. He is in us. That is clear from the Bible. And this morning, Paul is going to show us what that means. He's going to teach us what it is in this short section of text to be a truly spirit-filled church. A truly spirit-filled church. You can write that down. Let me ask really quickly, raise your hands if you would like to be, and this is where you you hate me as a pastor because I just said write this down and then I said raise your hands, but you have two hands, some of you, right? Uh, If you don't, then just use the one you have and then do it. raise the hand, okay? So raise your hand if you want to be truly spirit-filled. Raise your hand. Everybody nice and high so everybody can see it. Now, keep it up, keep it up, hold on, okay? Simon says keep it up. Now... I want you to keep it up if you know and could tell the person next to you exactly what that means, that a person is truly spirit-filled. Keep it up if you know that. Okay, a few of you. Yeah, okay, a few of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what that, if you, you match up with what the word says this morning, okay? But recognize that a number of the hands went down. We all want to be spirit-filled, but many of us don't even know what that means. And so we have to go through this topic as Paul talked about it. And this, this section of text gives us such an understanding. Of what it is. But before we get into that, I need a few favors of you. I need to ask you a few things because the topic of the Holy Spirit is much like politics and religion at parties, it is one that causes division, does it not? Right? If I'm with secular people, I don't talk about religion or politics unless they ask me to tell them who the king is that I serve, and then I tell them all about him. When I'm with Christians and I don't know what their background is, I usually try and stay away from the topic of the Holy Spirit because it's much like politics. And so there's a few things I want to ask of you. Can I ask you a few things this morning? Can I ask you for a few favors? First, the first thing is that we must all agree to sit under the authority of the Word of God. Basing any theology on our own opinions and emotions and experiences, that's always a bad idea. Our experiences and emotions and opinions do not override the Word of God. And unity can only come by our choice to unify with God's truth. And so, guys, whenever I teach or whenever uh, Patrick or Tyler teach, uh, when they teach, we sit down together and we go through the word that they're going through and we, we diagram it out and we use what's called a hermeneutic. Okay, hermeneutic is a fancy word that means understanding the word. And this is what we look for. We look for three things. What does this text mean in the canon of Scripture? That's canonical. What does it mean in the day and age when it was written? Historical. Right? What does it mean in terms of the grammar as it's written? Not in the English, but in the original language. Okay, and This is what we look at. And so when I say, let's sit under the authority of the word, these are the pieces that I'm going to be using throughout today's teaching. I didn't just come up with this out of the back of my head. I'm using these pieces to say, what did the author Paul originally mean? And we're going to get as close as possible to what he originally meant And we'll probably still be off, and he'll correct us in heaven, but we'll get as close as possible. So can we all agree to be under that orthodox hermeneutic? That's the way to study the word. Not just what I want the text to mean, not what Hans wants the text to mean, but what Paul was writing, okay? Can we all do that? Okay. Second, we must admit that this topic is indeed divisive, but division is not of the Lord. So we must choose to recognize that the reasons... Or We must choose to recognize the reasons that the topic of the Holy Spirit is often divisive and we must choose to remove them today. Now, there's probably many that you guys could come up with with me, but I want to give you just two that we need to put on the table and lay aside. First, our world loves to raise personal experience above absolute truth. Would you say that's true? Right? That's your truth. That's your story. You hear that all the time in the secular world? When it comes to the topic of the Holy Spirit and the theology behind it, I would say that we as the church are just as bad as the secular world because we want to raise our experiences above the truth of God's word. And so we must choose to lay aside our personal experiences and what our uncles and aunts and grandpas have said and we need to go back to the word of God. Secondly, I think the spirit becomes a spiritual trump card, and I'm sorry I have to even use that word, a spiritual trump card to raise ourselves above others. Parents, you ever seen it when you're siblings, you have multiple siblings, and they're trying to manipulate one another, and so I'll just take John and Jaden, right? Uh, John will go up to Jaden, remember they're twins, they came from the same mom, and one will say to the other, my mom told me, you ever seen your kids do that? Now, are they doing that out of a heart of unity and love and joy? No, why are they doing that? They're trying to say, I'm closer to the authority figure, so you need to listen to me. You ever notice how our kids do that? What happens in the church all the time? The Spirit told me to tell you, what are we doing? We're doing it simply to get a spiritual trump card and raise ourselves above others. Realize that when you're talking to another Christian, the Spirit that supposedly told you If it didn't tell them, it wasn't the Spirit of God. They have the same Spirit of God in them. And so we can't use that spiritual trump card. We have to realize that the Spirit dwells in us individually and together. Now, are there words of knowledge? Absolutely. But guys, those always come in the form of encouragement and building up. And if that's what you're giving somebody, then praise God, do that all the time. But if you're coming as a source of authority in another person's life and not using the Word of God that is shared by everyone we got to wonder where that spirit is coming from. And the Bible tells us to test the spirits. If we use the spirit told me or the spirit is leading me to shut down further discussion and refuse any healthy debate based upon the word, then we're in trouble. And I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm going to be totally transparent here. The number one uh, circumstance I hear people use the Holy Spirit in that circumstance is when they haven't talked to their elders or anyone in this church and they say, we're leaving and the spirit led me to do it. It's the number one place I hear that. That's not of the Lord. So we have to put that aside. We can't use the Spirit as a spiritual trump card anymore. So I would call us, and I think the Spirit is calling us, to be a different church, different followers, to understand the Holy Spirit and submit to him rather than use his name as a spiritual hierarchy or trump card uh, to, to put people under us or have our personal autonomy. So can we lay those aside today? Would you do that with me? I know some of you already are already struggling. I can feel it in the air. Some of you are going, no, wait a minute. You're taking the Holy Spirit away from me. Yes, I am taking away your autonomy in the midst of this body. Absolutely. Because we are a body of Jesus Christ. You are not any more important than anyone else in this room, including me. We are all the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so we don't use that to raise ourselves above others. So with that, okay, I'm going to just poke a hole in that elephant. I'm mixing metaphors here. All right. I'm going I'm to kill that elephant in the room, and we're just going to move forward, and we're going to look at what the Spirit says. All right? You guys good? Two people are good? How about everybody else? Okay, there we go. All right, remember that the context of Ephesians 1 through 3 was the theology and the orthodoxy that backed the practice that Paul asks us for in chapter 4. Spent a ton of time talking about the Holy Spirit and the unity of what is a charismatic church. You guys remember that? That God is going to unify us by using our diverse gifts, the personalities and giftings he's given us, to then build up the body of Christ. And in chapter 2, we were told that this building up will make us into what? It will make us into a temple of... Of God in which He dwells in us corporately. And that is the worldwide church He's talking about, but each individual local church is the place where He dwells as well. We are a local showing or image of that that temple. So, what does it mean then when Christ dwells within the church, where the church is filled with His Holy Spirit? Well, Paul started off in chapter four talking about that diversity, but then he ran it into some commands. And man, it was interesting to me how many conversations I've had with you guys about, man, I don't know if I like this command thing, right? Uh, Is it right that the Holy Spirit is commanding Paul to command us? That sounds like a lot of works, but yes, it is. Why? Because it takes commands to help us walk in the will of Christ. Parents, try stop using commands in your house and see how well you parent, How do you expect your children to grow up into the image you're trying to make them into if you don't command them once in a while? Now, you have to have a basis of love and care, right? You have to have a relationship there, but that command is important. And so Paul used six commands to help us. And as Tyler showed us two weeks ago, he showed us that those commands were helping us grow into the image of the Father so that we can imitate the Father to the world. We can imitate Jesus Christ to the world. And so Paul says in the midst of these, he says, imitate God and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And all of that section that we've read in chapter 5 that Patrick and Tyler taught us through, it comes to this place where we understand this. You can write this down, this is my first main point. To be led by the Spirit is to partner with the will of the Father. There is nothing else that is to be led by the Spirit. This is to be led by the Spirit, is to imitate God, to bring the world into unity with the Father. I'll show you that in a second. So to be led by the Spirit is to partner with the will of the Father. All throughout the Bible, God's people are exhorted to understand God's divine will. That's in a good theology. In a wrong theology, God serves us And so we start to ask questions like, God, what is your will for me? What is your will for my house, for my job, for my spouse, for my boyfriend, for my girlfriend, for my children, for my mission trip, for my ministry at church? And on and on it goes. That's a bad theology. A good theology is, God, what is your divine will? Not necessarily what it has to do with me. And what the cool part is, is that Ephesians itself tells us what his will is. We should never have to ask that question ever again. God, what is your will? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Go there with me. Just turn there with me a couple pages over in Ephesians. And Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says that he was making known to us the mystery of his will through Christ. It was according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? Unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Guys, all commands in the Bible, all imperatives, all statements of God's desire for us to come, uh, for us, come subordinate or underneath this one giant will. Everything has to fall under this. God's will is to unite all things in Christ. And at the end of days, as 1 Corinthians 15 said, to then unite us in the Father through Christ. His command, his will is to redeem and bring shalom back to his creation. To bring forth his kingdom reign in the midst of his creation. That's why we pray your kingdom come. Your will, say it with me, be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his will right there. We pray it with our kids often. To bring forth his kingdom reign in the midst of his creation. So our job, every one of your purposes in life, in every moment and in every situation, is to then ask, how do I carry out the will and mission of God to make disciples who bring about God's kingdom reign? If we're doing this overall, guys, then, then the other parts of life just become fun. They just become enjoying his great creation, right? My wife and I got a date day yesterday. It was the first time in forever, and we were super excited. We went up to the family opera. And, man, this, this was sitting there in my brain the entire time. We're on a date. We're enjoying life. I'm not doing missionary work, right? I'm going with my wife to have fun. But, man, we're sitting there, and we're about to write out the, the bill for the, uh, uh, for the waiter, And uh, we had a coupon, so technically we only spent $3, and man, I could have easily gone, hmm, 10% of $3, that's a great tip, right? But no, I thought, man, this guy needs to be loved, he needs to be given generously, and so we wrote him a really good tip. That's the will of the Father, generosity, right? And then we left from there, and we had to, well, driving there, we had to drive through the protests in Portland, and everything in my flesh wanted to get out and beat people on both sides, (laughs) right? But man, I was just sitting there praying as we're driving through, going, Lord, we need you badly. We need you now, right? We get to Phantom of the Opera and we have this wonderful time, entertained. It was awesome. Nothing to do with spreading the gospel. Kelly and I got in the car and you know what we talked about? All the reasons that that, that opera, that, that, that musical talks about the decrepitness and brokenness of life. And we we're sitting there discipling each other without even knowing it as we just enjoyed our life and the goodness of God. See, everything falls under those imperatives to do the will of the Father and bring his kingdom reign, even when we're having a complete day off of entertainment. Everything falls under that. And then the rest of my week, all the rest of what I'm doing this week is pouring out my life for the gospel of Jesus to advance in you and in Salem and Kaiser. That's all of us, not just a pastor. So, is God's will that we disciple others, our friends, our spouses, our kids? Absolutely. Guys, you don't parent one second of the day without actually discipling. All parenting is discipling. If you separate the two, you're going to get in big trouble. God's will is for us to disciple. His will is that we serve and make disciples within this body, that we use connections to non believers in our neighborhoods, in our, our working situations, in our school situations to draw them to Christ by imitating Christ in their lives living out righteousness and justice. These are the things that are the will of the Father. And the great news is that we do not need to change jobs or go on mission trips to do this. You can do it right where you're at right now. Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Stop asking if you're a single person, Lord, what is your will for the man I'm going to marry or the woman I'm going to marry? Stop asking the Lord to point that person out. Serve Jesus and say, Lord, I'm going to do your will in my life, and when you bring somebody alongside me that's also doing your will, then I can high-five them and say, hey, want a partner in life to do your will? That's a good marriage. <laughs> all things fall underneath this will of God, his saving plan to unite all things in his son through the cross and through Jesus' pouring out of his life and his further outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is God's priority, and he asks us to partner with him in that priority, not just for two hours on a Sunday, but every moment of every day. What we have done is that we have stopped asking God, what is your will for the whole world? We've started asking God, what is your will for me in my life? Guys, notice how the slight change causes a cataclysmic shift in the universe? It takes God off the throne, off of the center of the universe, and puts us there. Now, we should absolutely say, God, what is your will for me today in terms of application? But if that is our overall view of how priorities work, what's going to happen is we're going to then become preoccupied with using the Holy Spirit as personal guidance, We're going to turn the Holy Spirit into a magic eight ball that tells us how we will have the most successful and comfortable and happy life. We want to make our life the Garden of Eden rather than partner with Jesus to usher in his worldwide kingdom of shalom where he rules and reigns. And we use our superstitious feelings to guide us rather than the Word of God. It's amazing as a pastor how many times I ask people, well, the Spirit's leading me or the Spirit told me, how do you know? Well, I just do. No, no. how do you know? I just do. Well, how do you know that it's not a spirit of Satan? Well, I just do. How? Guys, I don't know. I'm your pastor and I don't know. The only way I know is if I go back to the Word of God and if I check with the other people who are in the Spirit as well, and man, if they're for it, we do it. That's how our leadership works. Man, I'll throw out this, what I think is a grand idea. Man, I had this time with the Lord and he placed on my heart to do this thing. Isn't this awesome? And I look around and I got 19 people going, nope, nope, Right? But if I throw it out and everybody goes, yeah, man, that totally fits with the word and that fits with where we're going as a church and everybody, whoa, that's not a bunch of yes-men. That's people discerning by the Holy Spirit, discerning by the word of God. And this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to cooperate with Christ and his spirit to follow in his highest goal, the salvation and unification of a redeemed world under his kingdom reign. And this is why in the last two weeks we have seen thanks to uh, the word Patrick and Tyler have shared. that We have to ask the questions then of who are we being taught by and who are we partnering with? Because these affect what our highest priority will be. If you're being taught by somebody who is itching your ears and saying, oh man, let's talk about how you can have your best life now. Let's how, talk about how you can have your perfect marriage now. Guys, I hate to tell you this, but God's will is not for you to have a perfect marriage outside of the fact that that marriage images his love for the world. Your job is not to be fulfilled in your marriage. Your job is to be fulfilled in Christ, who then uses your marriage as an image of his love for his bride. Are we being taught by those that will direct us in God's purpose and will, or are we being taught by those who tickle our ears to make us believe that God's will is our comfort and happiness? And it's interesting that Paul uses the phrase there in Ephesians, uh, look there with me, Ephesians 5, we went through this a couple weeks ago, 5-7, therefore do not, not become partners with them. What are you partnering in? Well, you're partnering in accomplishing something. And so if we're not partnering with Christ and his people and bringing about his kingdom reign in this world, then we might be partnering with the kingdom of darkness and the person who reigns over that. And so last week, Paul cried out with a war cry of God that we must wake up from our stupor of being choked out by the cares of this world. We need to set our life goals, our priorities, our values with Christ and not with just our own road. Is his will my deepest desire? If not, I would call you to not sit in condemnation of yourself. If you're sitting there right now and going, man, yeah, my... my my will is my house, my life, my marriage, my kids, my success, my retirement, then you should be convicted right now. But you shouldn't be so convicted that you're sitting in condemnation. What Christ calls you to do by his word, as we'll see today, is to set that aside and to refocus your priorities on his calling, his will, and his purposes. Again, I can't say it enough. God's calling to mankind and to every one of you and me is to unite with him in mission and purpose to fulfill the biblical storyline. Remember that everything, everything began in the beginning of the Bible with God and God alone. And let's just take that and go through the storyline really quickly and we'll see this mission. And that will help us to see whether or not we're on that mission, individually and corporately, or if we're off of it. Remember who God is and what his character is. Remember Exodus 34, 6, and 7? If you ever get stuck and you forget who God is, the God that you serve, go back and read this. This is the God that you serve. When he wanted to talk about himself and tell Moses who he is, this is what he said. He said of himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Amazing. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is that a good God, guys? How many of you need that God? Every single one of us. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is a God loving and compassionate, amazingly merciful, operating on behalf of the oppressed, and yet also perfectly just so that iniquity and rebellion do not go unpunished. He is the perfect and good God. Amen? Amen. He's perfect and good. We can trust him. And God then desired to have small image bearers within his created world to reflect this character and advance the kingdom of God, the Garden of Eden, throughout the whole world. Guys, Adam and Eve's job was not to sit around and eat bonbons all day. They, their job was to be the sub-regents of God that took his image throughout the world, that conquered the world on his behalf because there was a kingdom of darkness that was present even there. How do we know that? The serpent. God sent them to accomplish the conquering of the world in his image. And so this is why he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion That's a conquering word. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice it says over all the earth. Their job wasn't to hang out in Eden until the, the, you know, eternity was ended. Their job was to fill the earth. That was the first command. Populate, fill the earth, make more image bearers, send them out, conquer the world. And this is what man was called to do. But Adam and Eve, that didn't go very well for him, did it? They didn't imitate God. They didn't reflect his image. They did not call good what God called good and evil what God called evil. They did their own thing. And so then out of their offspring, generations later, that same creator God called a man named Abraham, who was in and of himself a pretty fallible guy, but he had offspring through whom God was going to show the world his image. You guys remember this? Genesis 18, 19. For I've chosen him, Abraham, Avraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What did he promise Abraham? That all the world, all the nations would be blessed through him. You see a theme here? This is God's will from the beginning. It always has been, always will be. Okay? And this didn't go very well either. You guys remember how this went? Israel, how did they do? Did they decide to follow God or serve their own purposes? Serve their own purposes. Here is what God said through the prophet Isaiah. And notice this is in the Old Testament, guys. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Notice the address, Old Testament, Isaiah. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. How are they grieving the Holy Spirit? Well, they were disobeying God in his mission. Look at what is said by Stephen in Acts 7 in the New Testament. He says, you guys are stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Is he talking about there that somebody resisted the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit to go marry this person? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit resisting going and living in this place or taking this job or going on this mission trip? He's talking about that you resisted obedience to God's command. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to help us walk in the image of Christ. You see, a failure to follow God's command, to live as a people reflecting God's heart of righteousness, love, mercy, compassion, and justice, is to rebel against the purposes of the Holy Spirit. And this resulted in Israel's discipline and eventual exile. Is this serious, guys? Oh, boy. Is this serious, guys? Yeah. Hopefully, your silence is a show that you recognize this is serious. We have turned the Holy Spirit into our puppet. It's not a good thing. But God, in the midst of this heaviness and honestly, a weight that I don't think I can even bear or you can bear, He promised them redemption. He said, Even though you've done this, I will redeem you. How is He going to do that? He's going to do that through a Messiah an anointed one who would come and deal with their sin of rebelling against the Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah said, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this Messiah would be pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. This was prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ who would come to this earth, proclaim the kingdom of God in both word and service, die for our sins as the atoning sacrifice on the altar of the cross, raised to new life after three days, stating undeniably that sin, death, and the kingdom of darkness had been conquered. Then he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit into the heart of his people, the church, so that they might be his body in the flesh on the earth, proclaiming his kingdom reign by their obedience and imitation through the power of the Holy Spirit until he returns to judge the living and the dead. That's what he prophesied, and that's what Jesus did. Now some of you right now, I I know you're sitting there thinking through the history of your life because we as Christians have gotten very well trained in Christianese, and we have proclaimed the name of the Holy Spirit over very big events in our life and very little events, and I, I want to try and soften a little bit what you might be feeling in terms of condemnation because I don't intend condemnation. You probably, as a Jesus follower, were intending greatly to follow the will of the Lord, And so don't beat yourself up by what I'm saying. Oh, man, that thing back 10, 15 years ago when I said that was the Holy Spirit, was that really the Holy Spirit? Well, has it resulted in fruit? Has it resulted in the Lord's kingdom being built up? Then if so, it probably absolutely was the Holy Spirit. But as people today being educated by the word of God, we need to understand that we can't turn the Holy Spirit into that, well, what should I do Magic eight ball. We need to recognize that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness, draw them to Christ, join them to the church, and then teach us every single day how to walk as His disciples. And He does that through us, teaching one another to obey all His commands. And so, what was different about Jesus in contrast with Adam and with Israel is that He operated off of this mentality. He accomplished the will of the Father. Go back and read through all the Gospels and read through all of his parables and stories with this understanding. He usually, I think it's almost 100%, but I I can't say that totally right now. He usually would say a parable after what? After he had done something that was so weird and different to the Pharisees that they're like, what are you doing, Rabbi? Oh, let me tell you a little story about the kingdom of heaven. We as Westerners, we take it and we think he was up on a chalkboard going, so this is the kingdom of heaven. No, he was living it out, and all the religious people were coming along going, you're nuts! You're not accomplishing the will of Yahweh! And he was like, no, no, actually I am. Let me show you how. And then he was telling them the story. Jesus did everything because he was trying to accomplish not his will, but the will of the Father. You never see Jesus ask for me time. Look at John 4.34. Jesus said to them, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish His work." John 5:30. "I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me." John 6:38 through40, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, speaking of his disciples. But raise it up at the last day, his, his kingdom. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Guys, in this level of obedience, this partnering with the will of the Father is what is required of you and I. Well, Hans, didn't Jesus do that? So I don't have to, because I'm—that's impossible for me. Guys, there's a huge difference between going, man, this is going to be really hard, and I'm going to fail in it sometimes. In fact, I'm probably going to fail in it a lot. That's what I say to myself. There's a huge difference between that and going, well, that's not going to happen. So I'm going to go live my own will. And then when I die, I get to go to heaven because I prayed the prayer and Jesus saved me. There's a world of difference between those two. We are called to have that same obedience. And guys, this is a massive undertaking. Would you agree with me? Yes. Do you feel the weight right now? I have to be obedient to the word of God and all things. Do you feel that weight with me? It makes me want to drop to my knees and cry out and go, God, I can't do that. God, have you seen the last 39 years of my life? I am decrepit. I want nothing more than to do what I want, when I want, the way I want it. God, how on earth are you asking me to be obedient to you? Does anybody else feel like that right now? And this is why it's so important to understand what Paul is saying to us today. It is an impossible undertaking because we constantly desire to do our own will. And so we must understand this next point. We can only truly imitate Christ if we are filled with the Spirit. We can only truly imitate Christ if we are filled with the Spirit. He said, "Look carefully when or look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is." We just talked about what the will of the Lord is. And now he says, in parallel with that, and notice that big and there, and do not get drunk with wine. Wait a minute. He goes into a sudden left turn on telling us not to get drunk. No, he's still talking about the same thing. He says, for that is debauchery, but, or instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul parallels two thoughts here. He first says, look carefully at your walk. Is it foolish or is it following the will of the Lord? Is it based on you and your foolishness or is it based on the wisdom of God? And then he parallels that with the next imperative command, as if to dig deeper into what it is to follow the will of the Lord and walk in the wisdom of the light. This section is broken down into one prohibition and one command. Do not go the way of foolishness by following the world and getting drunk with wine. Instead, go the way of Christ by being filled with the Spirit. Now, honestly, this seems like totally out of place unless we understand the historical background. There are many discussions about why Paul would suddenly go into the idea of drinking and getting drunk and compare it with being filled with the Spirit. Well, guys, it's because of the historical context. Remember, this was written to the church at... Ephesus. Ephesus was full of religious temples and people who would make pilgrimages. And in that world, that world of Greco Roman religion and the ancient Near East, what we know today as Asia Minor uh, or Turkey, okay? In that world, it was huge to be led by the Spirit. It was huge. You had the Oracle of Delphi, and you can go there today, there's a great fissure in the earth. And gases used to come up. And the oracle of Delphi would be a young virgin that they would take out of a village and she would get high on the gases and then start babbling. And the priests who wanted money would, would ask people for money who came to get their fortunes told and they would interpret the babbling to tell people what the gods were saying. Another group was Dionysus, the occult of Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine. Dionysus would be worshipped through drunken orgies in which ecstatic, uncontrollable experiences would occur. The purpose was to cause Dionysus to enter and fill the worshipper's body so that he or she would comply with the deity's will. Now you can see the same thing in many contemporary religions, guys. Even within what is called Christianity. A great example is going down and checking out voodoo in Haiti. It's the exact same thing. Now, we do not know 100% if this was exactly what Paul had in his mind as he was writing this, but it was the context historically. And realize, guys, that to become drunk actually makes us subhuman. It takes away the very thing that makes us humans, which is our frontal cortex, the, the thinking part of our brain, and it tosses it out. It's the same with any other drug. To get drunk is to be subhuman. To be filled with the Spirit and follow Christ is to be more human. It's to be what we were intended to be. And to not follow Christ and engage in what we believe to be good, it it makes us less than human. And that's the debauchery that Paul's speaking of. He says it's dehumanizing because you lose control. And why is it, you think, that we as humans want to lose control so badly? Why is that? Why, as a society, do we want to get high and get drunk and lose ourselves in even romantic love? Why is this so appealing? Well, there could be many reasons. One that that, uh, dawns on me is that it removes our responsibility. And it makes us numb to the truth that we have rebelled against our Creator and exist in a fallen world. It lets us turn our eyes away from Jesus and think we've got everything under control. Guys, I was a huge drunk in college. I was. Because I was depressed and suicidal and everything revolved around my athletic career and my success. So, man, it was so fun to go forget all of it on Friday night to do whatever I wanted, but every time I'd wake up in the morning and the sun would be shining in my dorm room, guess what I'd realize? Everything I wanted to forget is still right there. It's terrible. I had to repent from that and understand, no, it's time to embrace truth, not to try and avoid it. And so Paul instead calls us to be filled with the Spirit, The same spirit that Jesus calls the spirit of truth in our reading earlier. And that's why we are to speak the truth to one another in love. The core of our new covenant to one another is to speak the truth. We're called not to escape, but to engage in the warfare in front of us. And heathen cults such as those of Dionysus viewed intoxication as a means to inspiration. Any of you familiar with the name Lonnie Frisbee? Uh, He was the real starter behind the Calvary Chapel movement. You had Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was the young guy. He found Jesus on an LSD trip. Now, did he find Jesus? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think so, because the Lord did a ton of good stuff through Calvary Chapel. But guys, that's not the baseline. That's not what we should hope for. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, unlike drunkenness, we do not lose control. We gain it. That's why the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self. Say it with me. Self. Oh, that was weak. Self. Good job. Good self-control and speaking louder. Paul tells the church at Corinth that these things should not be done. Anything that shows itself to be otherwise does not have Christ as its source. I'm sorry to tell you. 1 Corinthians 14.40, the same chapter where he's talking about all the sign wonders that a lot of Pentecostals talk about. Look at what he actually says at the end of that chapter. All things should be done decently and in order. And just above that, he says that God is a God of order, not chaos. But for some reason, we think we're more spiritual when we act in chaos and spontaneity. I got ripped apart when I started uh, manuscripting my teachings There were multiple people at this church that are no longer here who told me, well, you're not giving room for the Holy Spirit. And I I said to him, wait, wait, you're saying the Holy Spirit can't be sovereign over my preparation and my manuscripting in the same way he is in the moment? No, you got to go off the cuff, Hans. You were much more spirit-filled when you went off the cuff. Yeah, I was also a bigger jerk and I yelled at the church a lot more. (laughs) That wasn't Holy Spirit-filled. So to think that spontaneity and, and... Going halfway in things leaves more room for the Spirit. Guys, it's just not biblical. And so this idea of be filled with the Spirit is a command for every Christian to walk in the control of Christ, to follow His will and be on mission with Him. So he says, don't step through the doorway of the kingdom of darkness that leads to a loss of control and an escape from reality of our sinful state. But he says, follow the Lord instead by His Holy Spirit, convicting us of obedience and disobedience as we try to live within his will to make disciples. And this is the process known as sanctification, guys. Now, how many of you, raise your hands, would say that, man, I feel like I'm an expert on sanctification? Raise your hands. Notice what I'm doing right now. (laughs) I wish I were, and I feel like I'm getting more understanding of it, but I'm going to take you through a short little teaching within a teaching here, and I want to show you really quickly all the views of sanctification that are out there, and why we teach what we do in here. Is that okay? Can I do that? Hopefully this will clarify for you a little bit what this idea of sanctification is. Okay. Sanctification is the process where the Holy Spirit turns us more into the image of Christ so we can more effectively accomplish His mission that we've been talking about. So I'm not going to give you an exhaustive study here, but I want to help you a little bit to remember the various views of sanctification and then again to focus in on what we're going to talk about here. So there are many views. Some of these you've heard before and some of them you haven't. We're just going to go through them really quickly. First, Wesleyan. This is from John Wesley. And this is very much the, um, the birthplace of a lot of what has become Pentecostalism. Okay? Now, John Wesley was an amazing guy. And please hear me. I am not trying to degrade Pentecostalism nor the brothers or sisters in it. I fully believe that they agree that uh, Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life. Um, and uh, living by faith is the way to be a Christian, right? So they're brothers and sisters. I just disagree in their view of the Spirit and in their view of sanctification. This view says that there's a second work of the Holy Spirit in which he will make you perfectly, completely obedient. Okay? It's entire sanctification through the perfect love of Jesus. And one could make an argument, like I said, that this is the father of what you'll see in a lot of Foursquare and Pentecostal churches. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just kind of disagree with their view of sanctification. And what this is, is this is very passive. This is the understanding that Jesus will do it, okay? So when you're saved, Jesus will do it. You just got to ask for it, ask for it, ask for it, understand the love of Jesus more, and then eventually he will give you the second work, okay? A second one is the one that's called Lutheran. This is a, a, came out of Luther's um, uh, writings, that when you're saved, you're, you're also sanctified. It's, it's the flip side of the same coin, And so really what you have to do is you have to worry about justification. And that's why uh, Luther's writings were mostly about being saved, being justified. And so I've been in churches and I've heard many pastors who rarely talk about sanctification because it's one side of the same coin. They have a very Lutheran theology of sanctification. It's very passive. It just happens when you're saved. Because we all agree that only Jesus can save, right? The next one is what's called Keswick, okay? It's spelled Keswick, but it's pronounced Keswick. And it's a wonderful movement that originated in Britain, And this is where, how many of you have heard the phrase, let go and let God? Die to self. They all came out of this, okay? It was a great movement. Lots of good stuff came out of it. Again, I'm not trying to put any of these down as bad. I'm just not totally in agreement with them fully, all right? Keswick is the let go and let God. It is this idea that if you just surrender, then Jesus will take over and you will be more holy, can any of you tell me what it means to actually surrender, though? Christians say that all the time, and I've asked many people, what does it mean to you to surrender? Well, I just have to stop. Okay, so you need to go sit and do nothing. Well, no, that's not what it means. Well, what does surrender mean then? And nobody can tell me, even some of my profs. Okay? Uh, the next one is contemplative. Contemplative. A lot of people who like to go out in the outdoors and they feel closer to the Lord in the outdoors, this is very much the idea. I want to go contemplate the Lord. I want to dwell, not do. Again, not bad. All these are good, okay? All these have pieces that are true out of Scripture or else they wouldn't exist. And this is the just dwell in Jesus, just kind of hang out with him. Now, notice that I have the word passive after all of these because you might say, well, some of these aren't passive. Contemplating is a work. Surrendering is a work. But guys, what does that actually mean? So most of these are just waiting for Jesus to do work. In a lot of AA circles, a lot of recovery circles, you'll see this one, deliverance. Deliver, not do. I just need to be delivered. And so you'll see these entire prayer meetings where they're just praying to be delivered from their sin. Again, good stuff, but not totally the full picture. And then there's this one. This one is reformed. This comes out of Calvin. This is very different because this has the Nike model. Just do it. Would you just hurry up and get about obedience? Now, immediately, some of you are like, oh, Hans, this is you. (laughs) This this is what you teach right here, right? You're always talking about obeying and and just doing it. But, guys, I disagree with this one, too, because if it were just our own obedience, would that actually work? No. No, because we can never obey. Like I said, guys, I'm your pastor, and I constantly want to do what I want to do when I want to do it the way I want to do it. And so what is the solution? It isn't just gradual growth and white-knuckling obedience. What I would submit to you is the reason I believe all of these are good and right in a certain way, but they don't capture the fullness of the view of sanctification, is that almost all Scripture creates a tension between passive and active participation. Take our command right here in Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we look at it grammatically, look at it with me, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is passive because there's one who's filling and it's not us. That's God. And yet the be filled is a command to you to do some activity in it. The grammatical structure tells us it's a command and yet it's a passive command. But then it's also what's called present. It's a constant ongoing work. So it could be said this way too. Church, let the Holy Spirit fill you. And this is why Philippians can say that God is good and he will complete the work in us. But Peter also calls us in his letter to make every effort. That's why they both exist. So all of these together make a beautiful picture. And so what we teach here at this church, and I want to spell it out for you, is this. We teach a view called New Covenant Sanctification. New Covenant Sanctification. I did not make this up. There are much smarter people than me that have put this together. But New Covenant Sanctification works like this. We have been given a new identity by God. That's not our action. That's his work. We are children of God, and everything goes back to that. First thing I'll ask somebody who's caught in blatant sin is, what's your identity? Be ready for that. If you come in for counseling, and you're you're sitting there, and you're going, man, I'm sinning Hans. I'm going to say, what's your identity? And your answer is, everybody say it. No, that's not your identity. If you were Jesus, what's your identity? Child of God. Does a child of God disobey their father? Well, no, of course not then you have to decide, are you a child of God or not? If you want to go on uh, being addicted and continue to do what you're doing, then, then you cannot be a child of God. If you want to be a child of God, child, children of God obey their Father. Okay, great. Well, how do I do that? Well, he's also given us a new heart, and that is the heart of Christ. And that heart of Christ still has a lot of darkness on it, and pieces of junk from our old man, but that heart, at its deepest will, it desires to do the will of God. Because guys, even when I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way I want to do it, I'm still sitting there going, but I know it's not what is ultimately going to fulfill me. Because what will ultimately fulfill me is following Christ and showing him to the world. And so then there needs to be this other piece, this piece that is largely lost in our world, this new rule, the law of Christ. I need to constantly go back to the law of Christ, which he also calls the law of liberty, and say, what is your rule for my life? I should not be doing this. And when I can't do it by myself, there's this amazing thing he's given us called a new community, the community of the spirit, where I can go to my brother, Patrick, and I can say, Patrick, this week, I can go to my discipleship group like I did last week. I wouldn't suggest you do this, right? Uh, Stand up here and tell everybody what you did in your discipleship group, but I will tell you what I did in my discipleship group. I sat down and I said, guys, this has been a really rough week. It's been hard. And when I have a rough week, my mind starts to wander in places it should not wander. I need your prayer, and I need you to ask me some straight questions this week. Because I can't do it on my own. I need you to help me. And so there's both a passiveness because we trust God to give us the new heart and give us our new identity and surround us by that community, and he's given us the law, but it's also active because I put in the effort to obey and to go to my brothers and sisters to use the community of the Spirit to engage that new will. It's both. Dallas Willard says this, he says, spiritual formation refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. To the degree that it is successful, the outer life of the individual becomes a natural expression or an outflow of the character and teachings of Jesus. And so a truly spirit-filled church will be a group of believers that walk within the new covenant sanctification growing in the image of Christ, imitating him to one another and the world around them. And if we do this, church, we will draw people like crazy. We will draw believers who have been struggling for years trying to figure out what it is to follow Christ. But if we base our spirituality upon signs and wonders that appear and disappear, guys, how you catch people is how you got to keep them If you catch people with signs and wonders, guess what will happen? The second signs and wonders disappear. Oh, the Spirit of God isn't here anymore. I need to go find a new church where the Spirit of God is. That's why people just spend their entire life going from one conference to another conference to another conference to another conference to another conference. conference, Because they need the high. It's like monogamous, it's like spiritual, or uh, what is it? Serial monogamy. It's like, I need the high of the new relationship. But man, forget faithfulness. That doesn't sound like it's fun to me. How we need to catch the world and draw them into Christ is by being a truly Spirit-filled church, not by exhibiting signs and wonders. If signs and wonders come, praise God for that. But that's not the core of being Spirit-filled. And so then when we finish here today. Our third point is understanding what it means to be Spirit-filled. Not only being sanctified, but what is it to show being Spirit-filled? Well, I would submit to you that based on the grammar here, what Paul says is that a truly Spirit-filled church is shown in its covenant faithfulness, obedience, and service. Paul started with the command to not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And if we keep going and look at the rest of what he says, starting in verse 19, many people think that these are commands, but grammatically they're what are called participles. Now You don't have to remember that. Just remember that these are descriptors of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And we must realize that these speak of an ongoing progression, not one moment in time. If we look at these descriptors and we think, man, that's not me, don't condemn yourself. Ask yourself, why is it not? And seriously, I'm being serious about this. Ask the question, have I accepted Jesus as Savior and King? Because the word is clear. When you do, he gives you the Spirit. And then, based off of that sanctification, the Spirit becomes more present in your life, leading you more. The first thing I want us to look at is I want us to look at um, the first one here that says in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Man, this is huge, guys. What this is talking about here this morning, the first thing, is that it's talking about a fellowship of the Spirit. A fellowship of the Spirit. Well, Hans, no, it's, it's saying addressing one another. Yeah, focus on the one another. This isn't saying that we should start making church a musical. I'm, I'm really in the mood because I just went to Phantom of the Opera. Right? <laughs> Pardon me, where might the restrooms be? Right? That's not, like, that's not how we work with visitors. Okay? That's not what it's talking about. There's a reason why I don't do Phantom of the Opera. Okay? What this is talking about, most commentators agree, is that we need to ask the Lord to impress upon us the importance of gathering together in the midst of the mission to reach a lost world. We gather together to be trained, to be encouraged, and to be challenged. But we also do it to show love and commitment for one another that blows the world away. I want you to look up at the screen really quick, and I want you to see something. That was this last week. You guys gathered together and loved each other by simply bringing food for one another and caring for each other. And I watched as people who were visitors to our congregation who were there were sitting watching you. I watched as a number of you went down to the playground and there was a family there with kids really struggling. (laughs) Watching you love your children, disciple them. And even though none of you went over and gave them a tract and gave them the gospel, you were doing the work of the Lord you are showing what it is to be a Spirit-filled community. And so fellowship of the Spirit is the first thing here. A church that is filled by the Spirit, it shows love for one another. There is a fellowship of the Spirit. Because remember, the primary job within the church of the Spirit is to unite us and draw us together. Secondly, though, uh, Paul says this. Secondly, a Spirit-filled Christian will praise God in the Spirit. Because not only do we sing songs to one another speak to each other in psalms and hymns, but we also sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. Now, there are two places in the ancient world that song would break out. One was in the places of pagan worship, and one was in the place of taverns. Europeans understand this. All they do is sing pub songs at (laughs) soccer games. That's where you sang. And so Paul is saying, no, we need to sing to the true God. We need to sing not in drunkenness, but in truth. We need to redeem the time and make melody not because you were drunk and asleep but because you were awake and in awe of the goodness of Christ. It was so funny to me because, again, I know I'm using this story too much, but Kelly and I went to the family opera and we're coming home and what are we singing in the car? We're singing, we're humming all the songs to ourselves. Man, how many of us as Christians walk around humming praise music to ourselves? Singing it. I drove through a drive-thru one time and I was rocking out to praise music, right? You know, I don't even remember what it was, but it was totally praise music and I pull up and uh, I'm just singing and then all of a sudden I look over at the person in the drive-thru and I'm like, oh, sorry, I can't hear you. And I turn it down and she's like, no, what was that? That sounded like really good music. And I had this whole conversation around praise music. Are we people that walk around praising God in everything? Are we a church of worshipers? Third, this one hit home for me, giving thanks in the spirit. Giving thanks always and in everything, realizing God is the provider through Christ. Man, when I have good days like yesterday where everything is right with the world, I just sit there in awe of how good God is. And I also sit in awe of my own foolishness that when I don't have days like that, that I'm angry at him as if I deserve days like that all the time. I have such a grumbling spirit, do you? Well, a grumbling spirit is not compatible with the Holy Spirit. Israel was always murmuring against God, even in the midst of miraculous provision. We murmur at our workplace when we complain about what our bosses bosses ask us to do. We complain about our spouses to our friends. We complain about um, our homes not being big enough when most of the world lives in huts. We complain about our kids because they didn't follow us to the letter every single time. Woe is us if we actually applied that to ourselves. We complain about everything. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this section, said, Shakespeare wrote in King Lear, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. It is true. Ingratitude in children wounds and sometimes kills, but how much more unnatural and repugnant is ingratitude in those who have become sons and daughters of the living God. It is so unnatural that a person may wonder if such a one has actually become a Christian in the first place. Ouch. Guys, we give thanks to God because he is the father of all that is good. And the world does not revolve around us. It revolves around him. And even when life does not look good, we still thank him. We can thank him even in evil because in evil, Jesus is weeping with us and sent his son to conquer that very evil that is hitting us. We can be thankful even in cancer because cancer is not of God. He was not the source of it. He sent his son to be victorious over death and the grave. And so we can thank him because somehow, some way, he will use what Satan determined in our lives to bring evil and he will take it and bring it to the glory of his kingdom. Are we a thankful church? Fourthly, submitting to one another in the Spirit. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now theologians debate this over and over. There's many different views. Is this talking about every person being equally submitted to every person within the church? Others say, is this talking about many of the structures and institutions that God put in place in the family, where there's husbands and wives in different roles, where there's leaders in the church from Ephesians 4? I would submit to you that it is both, that there's got to be an uh, an equality among every single person in the church, which is why we instituted membership. But there also needs to be structures in place to help us understand submission. God is a God of authority, and therefore he puts authority structures in place. And when those go perverse and break, yes, there is abuse. But Christian fellowship, based off of the love and service of one another, we then use our gifts and talents and personalities to serve each other. In the book of Exodus, for example, there were artists who were filled with the Spirit to use their artistry to build the tabernacle. Interesting that we are called, each of us, to use our gifts to build up the temple of the church. And notice with me that all of these characteristics, all of these characteristics, they don't have something and they do have something. The thing they don't have, notice that none of them are talking about fancy signs and wonders. Don't you think that if Paul wanted to talk about what is a spirit-filled believer or a spirit-filled church that he would use in this section, talk of all of the signs and wonders and the miraculous gifts. Don't you think if that were the main thing that made a spirit-filled believer, he would use it here? But he doesn't. Guys, what does he use here? What do all these things contain? They contain one word. Relationship. Relationship with one another. Relationship with Christ. And in the midst of it, having a thankful heart for all that we get to partake of. Paul's going to go from here and he's going to step into what's called the household code. Dealing with husbands and wives, children and parents, employees and employers. And it's in these relationships that we show the Spirit. Remember, our marriages and our parenting are for the glory of God. They're not for our fulfillment. So all of these must be centered in relationship to Christ and one another. And if we can live in that tension of allowing the Spirit to fill us and actively pursuing that filling through obedience, we will be able to imitate him and reflect the will of the Lord to the world, partnering with him in his mission to bring his kingdom to bear. How do we apply it? What do we do now? Well, the first thing is is we each personally need to examine how we walk. Guys, if you spent part of the time today being uh, a bit convicted that, man, you have made your kingdom the priority of this world, your home, your family, your job, your success, your retirement, if you've made that the, the center of the kingdom, then we need to be convicted. We need to examine how we walk, and we need to repent and prioritize his mission over ours. Have we confessed Christ as Savior that gets us into heaven when we die, so to speak, and King? Have we confessed our sin and turned to him in obedience? Are we participating in the community of the Spirit? Are we thankful or are we walking around criticizing our spouse, being grumpy to God? We need to look at how we walk, examine how we walk. Secondly, we need to biblically examine our view of the Holy Spirit and sanctification, Guys, I just beg of you this one thing. If you were sitting there through gritted teeth today going, man, I disagree with how Hans views the spirit. I beg of you to sit down with me in the word and show me why you believe what you believe. I beg of you. And I guarantee you that if you show me something that changes my view of sanctification and the Holy Spirit, I will submit to it if it's in the word of God. Please do that. But if not, if you sit down and you say, I have to admit to myself that I have kind of made it up out of my experiences, pieces that I've been told, previous churches, previous TBN, you know what I've seen on TV, whatever, whatever it is, then please surrender it and go to the word of God and say, what does he say a spirit-filled believer is? And then we also have to view, look at our view of sanctification. Do I look at it as both passive and active? Or am I sitting in disobedience, waiting for God to change me so that I feel like doing what he's asked me to. Guys, I can't tell you how many times a week I hear from you and I love you, so I'm, I'm bringing this to you. I, hear, I just don't feel like obeying. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like loving my spouse. When you find someone who's on this earth that does, please introduce me to them <laughs> because that is a unicorn with like three horns out of his head. No one feels like obeying Jesus because their, their, their heart that is new is still encased in this tar of the old man. So there comes a point where you have to buckle down and say, I will obey. There's a point with our kids. Think about a parents. If you go to your kids and imagine if your kids were like, yeah, mom, I know that you told me to clean my room, but I'm still waiting for you to give me your spirit that makes me want to clean my room. You'd look at him and you'd be like, you're insane. Go clean your room. I don't want to. Well, you're going to or else there will be consequences. Well, God does the same thing, guys. At a certain point, we must obey. Third, we need to recognize that feelings often follow action. Just try it. Be grumpy in the morning and start smiling at everyone you walk by. I guarantee you by the middle of the day, you'll want to smile. Why? Because the way our brain is wired, there is a two-way movement. We think that what comes from our feelings is what should govern us because that's what our world has told us. But the truth and the reality of the way that your brain works is that you can do just as much effectively by using the front part of your brain to tell your body what it should feel. It's true, guys. I'll show you the neuroscience. Sit down with me. I'll show it to you. Your brain can tell you what to do. Think about this. You ever been traumatized or you ever been like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. What does everybody automatically do? (sighs) You do that long enough, guys, guess what happens? All of a sudden, you calm down a little bit. That's your brain telling your body what to feel. It might be harder in some times than others, but it's still what we're supposed to do. So recognize that your feelings of disobedience, they will follow your action of obedience often. Being led by the Spirit oftentimes is letting His Spirit overwhelm us, and other times operating in obedience when we can't feel His presence at all. And lastly, and this one's a huge one, guys, each of you that were members were given a directory of who is a member in this church. And I asked you, let's pray for one another. Guys, we need to pray for each other like crazy. That we would be a people and a church that is filled with the Spirit. We need to pray for that for one another every day. Christ calls his church to be full of the Spirit. Mission must be a Holy Spirit-filled church. Let's follow the lead of our king and empty ourselves of all that might hold us back from complete obedience to Christ and actively pursue the filling of his spirit. As we go into a time of worshipful song, I want us to hear Paul's words that to allow the spirit to fill us is to also be a church that overflows in verbal worship. If you're a person that goes, man, I, just don't, I can't carry a tune and I don't sing, read his command and obey. People should come into this building and not be blown away because people are rolling in the aisles. They should be blown away because we are a people that respond to the cross of Jesus Christ with immense gratitude. Father God, let's pray. Father God, we are a people that lament. We lament our disobedience. We lament that we have ponded off on you that it is your fault by not giving us enough of your spirit that we are disobedient. Help us to understand what you did on the cross through your son. Father, show us that we deserve nothing but eternal punishment, eternal death, eternal separation from you. And yet you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the price for everything we have ever done in disobedience against you. What you ask of us is to give our allegiance and our lives to your son, to follow him in sheer obedience for the rest of our lives. We we will grow in that process, but to surrender our lives today, to say, Lord, I am done doing what I want to do. My greatest desire is to follow you. And Father, if there's anyone in this room today that needs to do that, that realizes, man, I do not have the spirit because there is no desire in me to be obedient to Jesus, to follow him, to be allegiant to him in any way, shape, or form. I pray, God, that you would convict them, that you would give them that understanding that they need to surrender their lives to you today. And I pray, God, that in the quiet of their hearts, maybe even verbally in their chair, that they would say, Lord, I'm yours. I give my life to you. And I pray, God, that you would surround them with this community of the Spirit to guide them and help them to walk in what it is to obey all your commands. There's no way we can know everything the moment we follow your Son. But we can surround ourselves with people who will teach us what that means. So I pray, Lord, for the non-believers in this room that they would surrender their lives to you today. I pray for us that our believers, Lord, that you would help us to walk in obedience even when we don't feel like it that you would help us to understand that tension of the passiveness of accepting your spirit and being filled by it, but the activity of making every effort to obey your will. And I pray, God, that you would give us discernment in our own lives and our minds and hearts and help us to wipe away anything that we have prioritized above you and serving your people and making disciples of our neighbors and our co-workers and the people in this church and our children. Help us, Lord, to make your mission our mission. Help us to make your goals and your priorities our priorities. And then in the small times of life where we get a chance to just rejoice and enjoy and be entertained, I pray, Father, that you would help us to give all thanks to you, a good Father who's given all good gifts. So as we enter this time of worship, Father, I pray, God, that you would just give us your Holy Spirit in immense measure, that you would help us to cry out to you in thankfulness, for the fact that you've saved us when we were lost when we were yet enemies you died for your son died for us and we thank you for that we praise you in the name of your son